Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. You guys are going to love this episode with Dr. Mark Greenstein. He is a physician at Advanced Urology, and we talk about his background and what made him want to become a urologist. We talk about the difference between a DO and an MD, which is super cool uh, to learn a little bit more about that difference. And we talk about what he sees on a regular basis in his urology practice and what role lifestyle plays. We get into pelvic floor dysfunction. We talk about men's health and testosterone replacement therapy. We talk about everything as it relates to urology and what we could fit in in this hour. But it's so nice to have a conversation with a conventional physician in urology that really sees the importance and values functional medicine and lifestyle on our health outcomes. So if you guys uh, have any kind of urology symptoms or are just interested in what in the world is urology, what does he do as a urologist? There is something for everybody to learn, both males and females, pelvic floor dysfunction, low testosterone, uh, interstitial cystitis. We talk about it all. And make sure you guys check him out. Uh, I've been so impressed with Dr. Greenstein. We have a lot of mutual patients, and he really takes time to care for his patients the best way he can in the conventional model. Uh, I hope one day to bring him over to the functional medicine side. But he is a truly uh, caring and compassionate physician, and he's actually been voted by Doctor Who Makes a Difference and got awards. Uh, labeled as most compassionate physician by vitals.com. So if you guys live in Atlanta and have any urology issues, Dr. Greenstein is the guy for you at advanced urology, but make sure to tune in and listen to this episode as we have a conversation all around urology. Dr. Greenstein, welcome to the little by podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm really excited because you're our first DO or physician in urology on the podcast. And so I wanted to first start by just getting to know you, your background, and really what made you want to become a urologist in the first place. So I, so I knew early on that I was going to end up in med school. Um, I kind of joke around with my family and friends that I was kind of brainwashed into this because if I wasn't going to be a lawyer, or if I wasn't going to be an accountant, I had to be a doctor. And so since I can't read or write, that's my joke. And, and math just was, wasn't, it was good, but it just wasn't my thing. I I mean, I mean, it was like, I had to go into this direction. So I kind of knew early on, this is what was going to happen. And so in meds, in, uh, in college, there was really no pre-med. I went to university of Delaware. There was no pre-med program like you hear about but everything was focused towards getting into medical school and got into medical school. I got, I I would say pretty lucky that I did. 
And, um, and then in the first two years, you know, all you do is you study, you go to class, you study, you go to class, and, and that's really it. And then in the third and fourth year, you're supposed to go do what's called rotations. Some rotations are core, like cardiology, internal medicine, family practice, OBGYN, general surgery, things like that. And then other things are elective, oncology, um, uh, ophthalmology, rheumatology, endocrinology, you know, physical medicine, things like that. And I heard that urology was a, was a good field. I kind of always thought about being a surgeon. Um, and so I did a rotation in my third year of med school. So that was around 1995, 1996. And the way I looked at it is, is the attendings were happy. The residents were happy. Uh, the reputation is that they were, they tended to be the smartest kids in their class, or at least in the top percentage. And after I did that rotation, the chairman of the program uh, sat me down and said, listen, we have a nice program. We think you're smart. And if you want a spot, it's yours. And, and so I kind of knew right then and there that that's what it was going to be. And so I went on to do the residency in Philadelphia through uh, Albert Einstein Medical Center, which is a big community hospital in Philadelphia, and the rest is history. So did you have to do a fellowship or your residency was in urology? So my, my residency was six years. So I did four years of college, four years of medical school, and then six years of residency. And the residency includes one year of general rotation. So we called it a rotating internship. And that was a year of internal medicine, cardiology, OBGYN, general surgery, ER, I mean, uh, outpatient clinics like family practice. And it just gave you a broad approach into just doctoring. And I did that through the University of Connecticut. And then I went back to Philadelphia to Einstein and I did two years of general surgery. Uh, and that was mostly um, hernias, laparoscopic surgery, and then tons of trauma. You know, we were we were at one of the trauma centers in Philly, and I, I mean every er, almost every night I was doing something that is literally on television. So cracking chests, intubating, taking people to the operating room, you know, running running traumas and things like that. And then after that, life kind of calmed down, and I did three years of urology residency. So it's just urology, you know, looking inside people's bladders, kidney cancer, prostate cancers, infertility surgery, kidney stones, all that stuff. And uh, there are fellowships available. I did not do one. I just went on into private practice as soon as residency was finished. Well, I feel like after six years, you're very prepared to, to start uh, working. <laughs> Well, well, it's more of like, you know, like, you know, you just spent 10 years trying to get a job. So like, I didn't have a job until I was 31. I mean, think of that. Like residency Gosh. really is not a job. I mean, it, residency is your learning. Okay. You get a salary. The salary, in my opinion, is kind of pathetic compared to the hours that you put in. Oh yeah. But you're, but you're learning, like you don't have you have some responsibility, but you don't have massive responsibility. And, um, and then you get a job. Like my first job was I was 31 years old. And, you know, so after all that, uh, personally, I was, 
I was cooked. I was like, I don't think I can train anymore. I don't think I have it in me. So I went on and started working. And then, but even in the field of medicine, you're, you're constantly learning. Uh, you know, there's stuff I do now, um, that I, I, I'm still figuring out, you know, how it works, what to do, how to make it better, how to, how to not do it differently. There are surgeries that are constantly being invented and, and retested and revamped and looked at in different ways. It's all based on the core stuff that we learn in residency, but you're, you're constantly learning. You're constantly doing stuff. Like There are surgeries done now that weren't even available when I was a resident. Mm-hmm. And so pe- pe- people have to go learn that. There were concepts in medicine and just fertility work and kidney stones that were not even around when I was a resident. And so you, you're constantly learning, you're constantly taking courses, you're constantly going to conferences and learning stuff. So you're always, you're always learning something. Well, that was going to be one of my questions and you just answered it with conferences, but how do you guys learn new procedures or stay on top of the science and the evidence when you're really busy with your caseload? Uh, you talk to friends, you get the books, you go to conferences and there's something that got invented after my residency called YouTube. <laughs> and so when I went to re- when I went to residency, there were no videos. There were there. I mean, the internet was. I mean, it, this was t- up to 2003. You know, like people were still AOL.com. Um, I don't even think Google was around yet. And, so you guys, uh, you weren't doing robotic surgery back then, were you? So I did. I did my training on robotics around June 15th. Now, let me think about that. I did my robotics training around, I'll say, I'll say May 30th, 2003. And then I graduated, you know, like June 1st, 2003. Wow. And so in, so there were probably, there was probably 10, 15 robots in the entire country at that time. And it was it was a little bit bigger in Europe, and because things are things always start off in Europe because you can do things more there. The system is a little bit more lax. Um, but the first robot was actually at Medical College of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, at least in 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 the city of Philadelphia where I trained. It wasn't at Penn, it wasn't at Jefferson, it wasn't at Temple. It was at this small community hospital called Medical College of Pennsylvania. They since have closed, but I did my original robotics training there, and I was like, ah, no one's going to use this. This is just for the university people. And next thing you know, two, three years go by, and it's really – it took a life of its own. Now there's now there's fellowships in it. There's tr- extra training in it. You know, The residents who come out now don't do op- a lot of open surgery. They're doing mostly robotic mm-hmm. surgery. Whereas when I was in training, we did nothing but open surgery, and we were just learning how to do laparoscopic surgery. Well, I remember when I saw my first robotic surgery, of course, I don't operate on anybody, but I get to observe a lot of surgeries, and the robotics was mind-blowing to me, and I don't know if it's still set up the same way, but the surgeon is feet away from the patients. And, I mean, precisely, like there is, I mean, it is to the millimeter it is, uh, and yeah. from my perspective on it, I'm like, 
robotics has probably totally changed surgery because I feel like health outcomes, recovery, everything has to be drastically better because the incisions are so small. The everything is so precise, but it was just crazy to me that the surgeon was like on the other side of the room and everybody's walking under this machine. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's basically, it's a giant. So this past weekend I went to Asheville and in Asheville, there is a retro arcade, um, in, in downtown Asheville. And they pride themselves of having this star Wars video game from around 1986, I'm going to say, or somewhere in the, in the mid eighties. And it's the kind where you sit down, you grab like a, a not a steering wheel, but more like, uh, I guess we'll call it a steering wheel with triggers. And that's how you operate the machine. And that's basically robotic surgery. Like you sit down in this device your head goes into a tunnel, it's 3D vision, and you're controlling these arms that are then telling a machine what to do. So Gosh. it's funny. Robotics is really not robotic. It's more of it's 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 more of a master learner kind of a thing where you're controlling something and someone's doing the action for you. Well, I just but they call it robotics because it's fancy. I know. Well, I just remember being blown away by the technology and just how precise it was. And it was just so crazy seeing it from the outside. And then I wanted to, because behind your name is a DO instead of an MD. And so I wanted to, how do you describe if there is any difference? Like, how do you describe that to patients? Because I know some people have never heard of DO before. Yeah. So, so doctor of osteopathy is, is a different way of going to medical school. So there's MD, which is medical doctor which is also termed allopathic. And then doctor of osteopathy or doctor of osteopathic medicine is just a different way of, of learning the body. So the we'll call it the MDs learn traditional medicine. You have a low thyroid, you take care of it. You have a gallbladder attack, you take care of it. You, um, you have high blood pressure, you take a medicine, you know, things like that. That's kind of the core. The doctor of osteopathic medicine started in uh, the late 1800s as, all right, there's got to be a different way of helping things out. And so it came with reorienting the nervous system, reorienting the spine and the bones, reorienting the muscles so that the rest of the body feels better. And it, it, it was kind of probably one of the first ways of looking at the body as a whole. And so a prime example is, let's pretend you have someone who's got gastritis. Okay. All right, maybe they eat too much spicy food and they take too much Motrin and, and they're not doing good things for their body, but maybe their, their alignment is out, of, is out of whack. Maybe they have a, a curve of their spine. Maybe their pelvis is out of whack and all that is, is miscommunicating within the body. And so that's how I was taught as a, at a core, but we still know that if someone has a low thyroid, you have to give them thyroid medicine. If someone has a sick gallbladder, we have to do surgery. If someone has a tumor, you operate or you give them chemotherapy. So I think the advantage that I have is that I was taught to treat the body as a whole, not just as a urologist. And so I, I use that almost every day um, when I'm at work, which is why I think functional medicine is outstanding because I think it just ties everything all together with what I do, with what you do. And it really just allows for 
an improved patient. And since we lack preventative medicine in our country, we're always trying to to do better so that the patients don't even need us. And one of my lines that I use with my with my patients is my goal is to ne- is for them not to even need me. Mm-hmm. And so if I have a person with pelvic a pelvic pain syndrome or a kidney stone, my job is prevention, treat and prevent so that they don't have to come back to me. I, I don't want them to come back. You know, I mean, obviously, if they need me, come back. <laughs> but the goal, the goal is I don't you know, if you don't need me, if you feel better, don't come back. You're good. Let something else bugger you. You know, maybe you need an eye doctor one day or something like that. (laughs) So do you know what percentage of physicians are DOs versus MDs or even schooling? Like how many are MDs versus DOs? I know that's such a random question going on you. No, no, no. Yeah. I saw that statistic a while ago, but I think what it is, I think one in, I'm going to, I may quote this wrong. I think one in six medical students right now in the country are DO medical medical students. When I went to medical school in 1993, there were only 15 osteopathic schools in the country. I went to the one in Philadelphia, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. We were the largest medical school at the time for DOs. We had like a graduating class of like 220 or something like that. Now there's, I think, about 35 osteopathic medical schools, and there's actually two of them in Georgia that are linked up with the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. So they have these weird names of Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, Georgia, and then there's Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, I think, South Georgia. And, um, and they're, they're all over the place now. There's, there's in Kentucky, there's in West Virginia, there's in California. There's a few in California. Um, they're they're popping up like weeds, and well, we it's it's also because we know that we are just entering the baby boom phase, and and there's not enough doctors to take care of the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're we're we've been told for years now that there's going to be a crisis for physicians, and we're just about to start that. Well, and I've worked with only a few DOs actually in the past, probably only about five. I would say. And every DO I've worked with always values functional medicine and they ask deeper questions just automatically. It's like the way they think their thought process is hardwired differently. And I think that's because you were trained to deal with the whole person. And I didn't know what DO was an option, like when I was finishing school. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I got linked up with it just because one, I heard it was a good med school, and two, when I was a in college, the the the, the um, healthcare physician at uh, University of Delaware, which you know you have to go to the the clinic there every once in a while because you get a boo boo or something or you don't feel good. She was a DO, and I kind of became friendly with her just because I was quote unquote pre med, and she we sat down with her one day and talked about things, and I was like, ah, oh, this is pretty good. And, um, and next thing you know, I went in that direction. Well, I think, I mean, for me on the outside, I feel like a DO is a really great path. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's absolutely equivalent to the MD. Your training is very identical. Only you treat the whole person 
correct? So there's no difference when you're looking at job descriptions, oh, yeah. job titles, MDDO equals the same thing. The thought process and the training is just slightly right. different in the fact that you look at the whole person. Yeah. And so there was a slight difference when, when I did my residency, when I did my residency, there was definitely, uh, we'll call it, we, we can a- analyze it like Republican to Democrat. If you were a DO, you stayed with the DOs. If you were <laughs> an MD, you stayed with the MDs, just like the Democrats stay with the Democrats, Republicans stay with the Republicans. But um, um, when I finished medical school, there was only probably, I'm going to guess, 10 spots in the entire country for osteopathic urology residents out of about, I'm going to say anywhere between 200 and 250 for the MD students. And now those residencies have merged. And so there's no difference between an MD residency and a DO residency. They're all the same thing. Um, I have a different board certification just because I went through a little bit of a different training program. Um, but I, it's all going to be, I think it's all going to merge together at some point. Which makes me so excited. And for all of you guys listening, look out for DOs because I just, I think you guys are incredible. So, um, and if you are in the Atlanta area, you need to go see Dr. Greenstein at Advanced Urology. Um, cause he's, he's fantastic. We have a lot of mutual, uh, patients and yeah. everybody has great things to say about you, which is fantastic. So I want to talk, tell me, yeah. Urology. Some people don't even know what is included in yeah. urology. Some of my patients get very confused of when they want to see a urologist versus when they want to see their gynecologist. So I'm just, right. I want you to kind of talk about what you treat as a urologist and what are some of the common conditions that you see in practice. So urology, U-R-O-L-O-G-Y, different than neurology. Because uh, some people think that it, there's an overlap because of how you pronounce it. Maybe it's my New York accent. <laughs> but uh, so we basically treat the urology system. So kidneys, ureters, bladder, prostate, urethra for guys. For women, there's no prostate. So it's just bladder, urethra. But we also get involved with the genital system. So for boys, it's going to be the prostate, the seminal vesicles, the testicles, the epididymis, the external genitalia. For women, uh, some of the urologists will do um, vaginal surgery and prolapse surgery, uh, overactive bladder surgery and things like that. Um, My main stuff is, I mean, the main stuff that I involve with are kidney stones, prostate cancer, bladder cancers, overactive bladder, kidney blockages, kidney cancers, blood in the urine, recurrent infections, male infertility. So uh, 50% of infertile couples are due to a guy issue and not many people know that. And so guys need sperm. And if the sperm aren't working, we got to go fix that. Um, and as you know, Chris and I have a huge, uh, pelvic pain, uh, practice in the area. And, uh, and that involves like pelvic discomforts and interstitial cystitis and dyspareunia and vulvodynia and all these pain syndromes that are involved in the urinary system. And of course, everyone's favorite, erectile dysfunction. And I think, you know, I'm glad you brought up the male infertility because 
our population, we work with both males and females, but we're probably about 70% females and 30% males. And yeah. I've worked with so many couples when the female comes in and they've been trying to get pregnant for, let's say, eight months, 10 months. Their GYN says it's too early. They're not diagnosed with infertility because it hasn't been a year of trying. Uh, and they are coming in, they're doing all the blood work, they're doing everything, they're taking the prenatals, they're getting their thyroid looked at, they're changing their diet, they're exercising, they're eating clean, they're doing all these things. And nobody has mentioned the male and it didn't even come across yeah. them, their mind. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up. So yeah. I actually have never sent anybody to you for that, but I can send people for semen analysis to you. Well, so we actually don't do semen analyses in our office. It's it's a lab issue. It's a uh, a regulation issue. And so there are areas in the city, in Atlanta, in the suburbs too, obviously, uh, places called RBA, Shady Grove, ACRM, plus some individual physicians that just do uh, female reproductive endocrinology. And so they specialize in helping women get pregnant, but they almost always have a sperm lab. When these are labs that are dedicated to looking at semen analyses under the microscope and also using medications to help the sperm swim better if they have to use things called artificial reproductive techniques. And so you can, I mean, off offline here, we can talk about how this for you to establish a relationship with any of those places. And if you see a, a couple that needs a semen analysis, you just basically write a script and then they'll send your report a couple of days later. And then if it comes back abnormal, then we could send them to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if it comes back, you know, low counts, low motility, sperm are shaped funny, that's when, that's when we come in. That's when, that's when we kick into gear. And we've seen a lot of men recently that nobody ever told them that doing high-dose testosterone replacement therapy can impact oh, the yeah. sperm. So we oh, see yeah. a lot of that. Do you get into Clomid for some I, of those males? I use Clomid all day long. Okay. I use, I use Clomid for – so I, I, I guess I didn't mention it in, just because it goes with the territory, but I have a, also a very large low-testosterone clinic. Um, guys who are just, they're just not making testosterone anymore. I have a few people that are borderline low, but they're, they're not feeling so hot. And so I do my best to replace them in a safe way. I, I, I only have like one or two guys that's trying to do stuff for performance and I watch them very closely, but the downside is there are unfortunately these, we'll call them men's health clinics that are out there that are just testosterone farms. And I, I hope they are stocked with staff that can be educate that could be, you know, educational and te teaching the guys that, Hey, you know, 400 milligrams of testosterone once a week is going to make you infertile. Yes. And, and unfortunately there's only so much I can do to educate our patients or patients that come to me for second opinions from these clinics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's been really pretty amazing though with some of the males when they do switch from testosterone to Clomid that they start making sperm again and their counts yeah. like very quickly. I feel like men are just very resilient in that way. <laughs> for Well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, if a guy's been on test, let's say a guy's been on testosterone, let's say he's 40 years old 
He's got a 32-year-old wife, all right? Uh, they got baby number one, but he gets diagnosed with hypogonadism, um, and which is low testosterone. And he goes to a clinic somewhere, who knows, whatever. They start giving him testosterone, say 200 milligrams every week. They check his levels, and next thing you know, his testosterone is greater than 1,500. So it went from, say, say 270 to 1,500. His his semen his sperm analysis his um sperm production is going to shut down, mm-hmm. and if he's on it for a short amount of time, those cells will come back to life, but they need to be kickstarted with clomiphene, and what clomiphene, which is clomid, does is it tricks estrogen in the body to say whoa, 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 something's not right here, go stimulate the cells of the testicles to start making sperm again and to start making testosterone again. And they wake back up. And Clomid's only been used in males for the last like five years or so, right? This isn't something. Oh, much no, much longer. It's been so. It's been it's been out for many years, but I've been using him for close to twenty years. Wow! I started, I started practice in two thousand three. In males. Um, in males, I would use it for men with low testosterone, and I would use it for men with low testosterone and low sperm counts. And, um, the problem is many years ago, the pharmacists were like, why are you Robert? Why are you taking this medicine? This is meant for Roberta, you know, and And patients were calling me. I'm like, please, please just, it's okay. But as time has gone on and the, we'll call it the marketing of low testosterone has become a big field in the last 10 years, Clomid got looked at by, centers like Cornell University as a very safe medication for men with low testosterone. And so we we're giving we use it all the time. I've been using it for years. I did not realize cuz I mean we always knew Clomid and learned about Clomid for women for helping with ovulation yes. and infertility yes. and I've been much more aware of it the last 5 years but I had no yeah. idea that people were using it for 20 years. But yeah. it just it yeah. seems like especially for those younger population I want to talk about the role lifestyle plays because I know you and I, we see a lot of men with very low testosterone that are in their 30s that really should not be having super low testosterone at that point in their life. And I really believe lifestyle plays a big role in that. But I feel like sometimes testosterone can become this kind of clutch for them. And then you're prescribing, you know, estrogen blockers and it's this whole series of things. And Clomid and lifestyle just seems like it could be a much better approach to maintain sperm motility, especially in the 30 year old. Like you don't know when you're going to want to have children or things like that. And I just, I've worked with so many uh, males that come to me and nobody has let them know. And they've been on testosterone therapy for 15 years. You know, they started it when they were 31, they were CrossFitters, they want testosterone at 900, a thousand. And now they're unable to get pregnant. And I just, I, th- I just find the whole space interesting. So I'm so happy to hear. I did not even know that until today that you use a lot of yeah. Um yeah. And that was going to be one of my other questions is, so you are very conventional medicine trained. You're a conventional medicine urologist. You see a lot of these conditions that you just mentioned. And from your perspective, how much do you think when you meet with these patients that lifestyle plays a role on these conditions? So for a lot of this, I, I, there are some things that nature is just taking its course and if a person gets a, a prostate cancer, as of now, that's a nature and a DNA thing. If someone's getting um, 
uh, a growth in their kidney, that's a nature and a genetic thing. There's, I'm sure there's environmental stuff to some things, but we just don't know that answer specifically. But when it comes to a lot of things like um, recurrent bladder infections, kidney stones, male infertility, low testosterone, erectile dysfunction, that's a lifestyle thing. And so the classic guy that's walking in these days is someone, I'll say 35 to 50. They're probably 25, 30, 45 pounds overweight. They're snoring up a storm. They haven't walked up a flight of stairs vigorously in two years. And they're just, they're just not well. And they don't realize that they're not well. They think this is an aging thing. Oh, my, my dad did this. My uncle did this. My grandfather did this. And they're not growing, they're not growing older gracefully. And so when you have a guy who is overweight, snoring, poor sleep, um, and then they start saying to me, how come I can't have erections anymore? You know, this is functional medicine at its core. Mm. And this, this is not, here's Viagra, see me in six months. I mean, I can easily do that and, and not be a good doctor in my opinion, or not, I don't want to say that that's rude, but not be an effective doctor. This is the person who needs, you know, a sleep study, nutritionist, weight control, exercise, you know, someone to get into their head about exercise if they can't do it on their own. Um, and then plus work on hormones as long as they're being a good patient, see what their hormones are up to and get those back into high gear and working properly so that they can feel better. And that's, to me, I mean, that's, that's functional medicine at its core. How many hormones are you able to check through through labs? Because I know, like, for example, I work with a lot of women that go to their GYN and they want a hormone workup. And they've been told by their GYNs that they don't check hormone levels. And um, I, I really find that kind of mind-blowing. And I know you're checking testosterone because you talked about the low testosterone. But are you yeah. guys able to check estradiols and estrones in your male patients? Or are you kind of like stuck with checking the basic things? So, so I, I can check. Well, first of all, there's a lab test for nearly everything. The question is just how much do I need to check? And I'll be honest with you, I keep testosterone very simple. If, a, if I think a guy is having low testosterone, I get a morning set of labs. It has to be before 10 o'clock in the morning. Thank you. And that's also, that's also an insurance thing. And sometimes we got to deal with those people. Um, and so we get a testosterone. We get uh, an estradiol. We'll get a thyroid panel. I'll get uh, a hormone called DHEA, which is a testosterone precursor, because every once in a while we'll see something a little haywire with that. I have some partners that look at uh, IGF, which is insulin growth factor. Yeah. Oh, insulin like growth factor. I don't get into that world, but I have partners that get into that world. Um, uh, and I can always, you know, curbside them if I need to. We'll check a CBC because hormone replacement involves hemoglobin levels. Um, I will check uh, their pituitary gland, so prolactin, FSH, and LH. So FSH is follicle-stimulating hormone, and LH is lytic hormone because there is something very important in the body called the pituitary gonadal access. And when you start giving hormones to people outside the body, not Clomid, that doesn't count, but, but testosterone shots testosterone pellets, estrogen pellets, things like that, 
you're going to disrupt that access. And that's why guys get low sperm counts when they're taking outside testosterone. So we do all that. Um, we check that panel. And then if, it, if something's out of whack, we usually bring someone back and we do it again because that's what the insurances want. And, and sometimes I have to play, play ball with them. And then once I see two labs that are low, two testosterones that are low, I bring the person in and we start hashing out ideas of what I can do to replace their testosterone. And it's, Certain, go ahead. Well, I was just go curious ahead. for you, low, like you have to follow insurance. Like it has to be flagged low. Like it can't be on the very, very low side of normal. Well, or do you have some room? A, so that's a debate. So the labs, actually the insurances want a testosterone less than 350 twice. But what's the difference between 349 and 351? I right? Know. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the good news, whether this is good or bad, but the good news is that medicines like clomiphene and testosterone cypionate are very inexpensive. And so testosterone cypionate is the testosterone injection. When you use things like GoodRx, which is a third party benefits manager, and I'm not. There's a whole mishmash on how that works. Um, those things, the, clomiphene and testosterone are very inexpensive. And so considering insurances don't want to deal with testosterone, um, it's very easy to go outside a pocket. And if you use GoodRx, you can use your health savings account, credit card, and things like that. It's really not that expensive. Well, I'm just so happy that you guys do do comprehensive hormone testing. And we've started looking at a lot more male estrones and Mm -hmm. because we've had a lot of men that have some of the estrogen dominant symptoms, like they're really, you know, getting breast tissue or gaining weight in certain places and their estradiol actually looks pretty good and their estrone will be through the roof. And uh, I just find it fascinating just because of the role estrone plays in fat cells and fat, uh, you know, fat cells make estrogen, it converts testosterone into estrogen. So that yep. I, I just well, find it fascinating. Well, that's why the your world of, like I said, I keep testosterone very simple. If something's a little out of, out of, out of my realm, I'm calling you, you know, I'm not even, I, and yeah. don't take this way. I'm not even going to call an endocrinologist because the endocrinologist, my experience is very few of them want to handle testosterone because of the insurance games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and they don't even want to deal with it. We're we're more than happy to deal with it. But if we're seeing like something's just not right, that's where a big role of you know outside of the box labs become important, like like you were just describing. Well, and even checking the fact that you look at a DHEA because that is you know really an adrenal hormone, you can start uncovering some of the potential root causes for the low testosterone. So we find a lot of males that their DHEA is is super, super low. And if you support their mm-hmm. adrenal glands and their stress management and their lifestyle, they're going to make more testosterone naturally. And uh, so I think that's great that you also look at DHEA and do morning testosterones because I'm blown away too by how many people come to me and their hormones were checked at 2 p.m., 3 p.m., yeah. And that's just not accurate. We really try to do first thing in the morning fasting and within an hour of waking um, to really get some some good, accurate labs and to actually be able to track trends. Because I tell people even a 7 a.m. level versus noon, that's apples and oranges. We can't use that in comparison for how you're doing. Yeah, exactly right. 
So we see a lot of people, uh, women specifically, with interstitial cystitis, or IC. And I know this is something that I will try some lifestyle things, but it's a tricky process. And this is a big thing that I refer to you for is the IC. Um, And so I kind of wanted to shift a little bit and hear like, what does a typical workup for you look like with an IC patient? And I know when we were talking before with some of your compound treatments, you've had some really good success with IC. And so I would love for our listeners to learn a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah. So the, the classic IC person they usually, uh, and this is going to sound terrible, they usually have it stamped on their forehead. In other words, I can kind of like see it from across the room. And they come in with a very similar story. They're usually young, somewhere in their 20s. Sometimes they'll be in their 30s, 40s, or 50s. And for the, we'll, we'll call them older, uh, the more, the, guy, the guys and girls in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, their symptoms started 10, 15 years ago. They just never did anything about it. Or they've been misdiagnosed with things like recurrent bladder infections or prostate infections. But they all come in with a very similar story. There's frequency, there's urgency, there's pressure. It hurts to hold in their urine. They're up at night a couple of times. They all, they all have some kind of gist of things like that in their, in their story. And so what do I do? I see what they've been doing for the last year or two or five years or 10 years. I talk always about diet because you are what you eat. If you eat terribly, you're going to feel terribly. And so the classic American diet is very, we'll say, uh, rich in IC, <laughs> in mm-hmm. IC symptoms. <laughs> and so the, the nine cups of coffee, the seven Coca-Colas, the six Sprites, the, um, the trips to Chipotle, the, uh, the pizza, the alcohol, those are all things that just irritate the body and irritate the urinary system. And so if they need their cup of coffee, if they need to have a glass of wine, I, I get it. That's fine. I use something called Preleaf, P-R-E-L-I-E-F. It's online. It's over the counter. Um, it's funny. I used to start, I used to recommend it before there was online. Let's think about that. Okay. <laughs> And so, and it used to be available only at Walgreens, you know, and this was pre-Amazon, pre, whatever. Okay. So pre-leaf neutralizes their diet and it tries to take that pressure or the, it tries to take away that sting in their urine by however the mechanism of pre-leaf works. Think of it like someone who's got um, uh, a heartburn and they need a Tums. And so they need something that's just going to like neutralize their stomach acid. This just neutralizes the food in the urinary system. I encourage them to use that. I do give them a trial of a medicine called Urabel. So Urabel is U-R-I-B-E-L. And this is a combination medicine um, that includes hyosamine, which is a smooth muscle blocker uh, or smooth muscle relaxant, uh, methenamine, which is an antibacterial agent, which is not an antibiotic. It's just, it's, it, creates an environment in the urine so that bacteria will not grow. Methylene, excuse me, um, methylene blue, which kind of coats the bladder, and it also has a little bit of aspirin in it. And I find that this medicine is, I call it the rescue medicine for my IC patients. And if someone responds to that, that tells me a lot. They don't respond to it, that tells me a lot too. Sometimes I'll do an ultrasound. We'll make sure that there's no kidney stones, nothing going on with the kidneys because we want to keep the kidneys healthy. 
But the cornerstone tr- uh, way of diagnosing IC, interstitial cystitis, is I must look inside their bladder. And I use the word must because to me, the only way of diagnosing interstitial cystitis is with my eyes. Mm-hmm. And for someone who gets told that they're diagnosed with IC because it's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not, I think that's completely wrong. I think that's completely false. Um, there's something out there called a potassium test. I mean, I've never ordered a potassium test. It was, I think it was, it was um, looked on by the American Urologic Association as experimental, but I'm still seeing patients that are being told that, that, well, their potassium test is positive, therefore they have IC. Potassium test means that they're taking a, a doctor's putting a catheter in their bladder and they're putting this potassium cocktail in their bladder. And if it hurts, you have IC. If it doesn't hurt, you don't have IC. Well, when you have a patient that already has a painful urethra and over, you know, overactive bladder symptoms and you go stick something in their bladder awake, they're going to they're gonna hurt no matter what you do to them. So that test is, is garbage. And so whenever I have someone in my office that I think has IC or I think they're heading in that direction, I tell them, I said, listen, I can play games with drugs. We can do, we can do diet. We can do all kinds of stuff here. I can send you to physical therapy. But the only way to know what's happening is for me to look inside. And when I look inside, it's diagnostic and it can be therapeutic at the same time. And therapeutic because you can put solutions in to kind of calm down yeah. the inflammation localized. Exactly. So, so the, so the cornerstone treatment is what's called a distension. So while a person's under anesthesia, I only do it under anesthesia, to do an awake cystoscopy is not going to help me. It's not going to help the patient at all. Um, under anesthesia, we look inside. I distend the bladder until it reaches its capacity. I hold it there for three minutes. And then I slowly drain the bladder afterwards, and I look for these changes in the lining of the bladder that are consistent with interstitial cystitis. Then I put medicines in their bladder like Novocaine, like steroids, and then I, I let the, and then I wake the patient up. They go to the recovery room. They're a little groggy for a little bit. They go to the bathroom like 20, 30 minutes later and get rid of that solution. And by that point, hopefully they're nice and numbed out from the Novocaine, but the, the distension also sends signals back to the nervous system to say, hey, calm down, leave this person alone. And I, I, I consider it like, I, I consider it osteopathic because in osteopathic medicine, there's osteopathic manipulative medicine. Like I was trained to reorient joints and quote unquote quack, crack backs and crack your pelvis and all kinds of stuff. And it's all that's doing is sending signals back to the nervous system to say, hey, leave this person alone, quiet down a little bit. And that that's part of the therapy. And does everybody, all urologists, when they do a cystoscopy, do they all distend the bladder or is that something that so. not everybody does? Okay. They should. I hope so. They should. Okay. In my opinion. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what is conventional medicine kind of saying as a potential root cause of IC is because I know for us, we look at hormonal components. We look at the gut microbiome. We of course look at diet and lifestyle, but we're also kind of wondering in our world, like, is this more of like an autoimmune condition for some women? Um, Anything with conventional medicine, I know you mentioned lifestyle, but do you guys think hormones may be playing a role? Gut, gut health plays a role or anything else that you see as common denominators? So the dilemma is, is that with all the research, we don't know what the root cause of IC is. 
There's people out there that think it's bacterial. So there's a guy in London that's publishing stuff that that there is a bacterial biofilm that builds up in the bladder, and that is what destroys the membrane, the bladder mucosa, and then that creates the symptoms of interstitial cystitis. There's there's a person in Philadelphia who thinks that it's all because there is a protein called the glycoaminoglycan that is missing in the cell membranes of the lining of the bladder, and then that triggers IC. There's people that think that it's related to histamines or uh, your your allergic response to to the, to uh, to allergens and toxins. So in other words, if there's a lot of mast cells, so the mast cells are the cells of the body that are involved with histamine release. So when you sneeze a lot, that's your mast cells acting up in your sinuses. Um, and so if these mast cells are in abundance in the bladder, some people think that it's allergy mediated. But then there's also autoimmune mediated, like the body's a- attacking itself, like a, like a rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. Uh, there's, there's so many different theories that no one knows what to do. I've, I've always had the approach of treat the person. Everyone's a little different. If the person has pain, treat the pain. If the person has overactive bladder, treat the overactive bladder. But encompass the functional medicine approach, you know, the whole body approach, so that we're treating everybody individually. If that makes did I did that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> so, are there a lot of, or is there any urologists that are really? And I, this is probably a silly question, but can you? culture or biopsy the lining and figure out if all these patients are having a lot of elevated histamine or mast cell or we used, if it is we biofilms. Used, yeah, we used to do that. So years ago, we used everybody we thought had IC, we would biopsy their bladder. We would send it to the lab asking for a special stain looking for mast cells. And we, we just don't do that anymore. I'll do that on occasion if if I have someone where we don't know where they're going and they're just, they're really seeing multiple different specialists and we want to just document certain things for that patient. So one, one patient comes to mind that is seeing a quote unquote mast cell specialist and, and I biopsied her bladder and it did show an abundance of mast cells. And hopefully that mast cell specialist can help that person with whatever they're doing because that, that's a field I don't know about um, to help that person's position. Mm-hmm. And situation. Well, and you just think of all the things that end in itis. I mean, from from top to bottom, iritis, gastritis, thyroiditis. I mean, everything. Yeah. And it's like the root cause for so many of these things is we're just very inflamed in America. Yeah. And yep. you know, of course, the root cause of inflammation is so different. So. Yeah, I just, I find it fascinating. And I was also curious, like we talk a lot about the brain-gut connection now, and I know there's been sub-publications that look at the gut microbiome and kidney function, um, but are you seeing like a gut-bladder connection? Like is this concept of dysbiosis that we see in the intestines playing a role with the bladder health at all? So I think that it probably does exist, but I am not the person that's going to be uh, available to do that testing. And so if I think that there's something, a, a gut issue going on, like I'll be honest with you, I saw a person today. I think he needs a functional medicine doctor. I gave him Kyle's name because I think he will get along very well with Kyle. Nothing against you, Kristen. <laughs> no, I'm but, glad uh, you did. Thank you. And uh, because he, you know, I gave him the spiel. I gave him the spiel of you got to watch your diet. You got to sleep well because he's sleeping 
terribly, um, I, you know, I need to look inside your bladder. He's not ready for that. I said, okay, let's try a medicine. And I think you need to see a functional medicine doctor. I think you need, or a, a functional medicine person and, um, um, let them get into some root causes as to why your body just doesn't feel good. And I, I definitely believe in it. I've had people go on uh, gluten-free diets, acid alkaline diets, uh, anti-inflammatory diet. You know, I've done that, but I, I can't say I've gotten into the nooks and crannies of it like you guys do. Well, just, it makes so much sense to me because if you think about everything, like when you drink water, it goes through your kidneys, through your bladder, you urinate it out. Like it's going through your intestines and your microbiome is playing a role in everything, even sure. to your vaginal flora. And sure. so I just, I feel like the connection is so prominent. And, and what a lot of people don't realize is they're like, well, I had a colonoscopy or I had a cystoscopy. But you can't see when you go in there, like you're not going to see on a cellular level what's happening with the biofilms and the mast cells and, you know, some of those things. Of course, you can see inflammation, but we're talking about like on a cellular level what's happening with the flora. Uh, right. And I just find it, it it's, it's fascinating and our body is connected as one. And I right. know that you refer to pelvic floor physical therapy, which we really appreciate. And so... Do you see some of these patients with IC, or I know you've referred a few male patients to us for pelvic floor physical therapy mm -hmm. that, you know, males, again, they just seem to respond so quickly to pelvic floor physical therapy too. It's really pretty amazing. But what uh, conditions do you see that pelvic floor physical therapy has helped the most in your clientele? Um, so there's patients with IC, patients who are what we call dysfunctional voiders. In other words, they urinate very poorly, whether they strain, they push, they clench, but their, but their urology anatomy is normal. In other words, the, a guy does not have an enlarged prostate. A guy does not have an overactive bladder. A woman doesn't have an overactive bladder. They don't have a prolapse. In other words, their bladder's dropping, their uterus is dropping, their urethra is moving or anything like that but they are not urinating adequately and they, they benefit fantastically from physical therapy. Um, I see cases of vulvodynia, which is a, a pain condition of the female vulva guys with genital pain, just like there are guys out there that their genitals just hurt and no one's going to know why. And it's very upsetting. It's usually muscular and that's why the physical therapy, you know, comes into play. Um, Guys with erectile dysfunction some, can sometimes get, get benefit from physical therapy. Um, prostatitis, which is a whole other ballgame we haven't even talked about yet, but that, that falls into the interstitial cystitis world, pelvic pain world. Uh, those guys do awesome with pelvic floor physical therapy. Conditions like that. Well, I know for us, we've even seen patients that their, their symptoms seem fairly mild, but they're waking up three times per night to urinate and that's impacting their ability to get into deep sleep and their quality right. of life and their immune system and inflammatory response and everything that we're talking about. And they go to pelvic floor physical therapy and within a few treatments, they're waking up just once to use the bathroom or not at all at night. And yeah. yeah. You know, that is a small thing that really people, I think, normalize. Well, I just, I, you know, drink water at night. And so I wake up three or four times per night. 
Uh, and no. it has a domino effect, you know, it's yeah. really impacting so many other things that they don't realize. Yep. And so, um, I know we're getting really short on time and I just kind of had two last questions that are more personal yep. questions, but I'm really interested because I know, you know, when you work with patients, you are serving people all day long. You're taking care of so many people and their needs and their health. And so I always am so curious if what a typical day for you looks like and how do you keep yourself healthy while taking care of patients? Oh boy. Um, so, or if you do, wake up. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I try. Uh, wait. So I guess a, a typical day is I wake up, I try to work out ahead of time. Um, sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. Uh, if it's during the school year, I take one of my kids to school. Sometimes depends on what time I need to be in the office or in the operating room. And then I go to work, you know, so I'm in the building anywhere between seven 30 and eight o'clock. And you know, you're, you're on the move until about five, six o'clock, um, go home. If it's during the school year, it's homework, dinner, to try to sit down with the family. How was their day? How's everybody doing? Maybe do something with the kids. And then I tried my best to spend time with my wife when the kids go to bed. Now that school's done, that's a little tough because the kids are just kind of lingering around and just kind of <laughs> mulling things around and, you know, kind of being kids. And so that, that's a little tough. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's what I try to do. To me, the, the biggest thing is I'm getting older is I've got to work out. If I don't exercise, I, 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 I feel terrible. And so I'm a, I'm a Peloton fan. I have a rower in the house. I do CrossFit. Um, I'll go for hikes with my wife. I'll go for a walk with my wife. And it's just, you just got to get out and move. That's the biggest thing. How is your work day? Like, are you able, I know that a lot of people in healthcare are like, they don't get what people think of as this hour lunch break to go walk around the building, sit outside, have a nice lunch. Um, what does your work day oh. look like? Are you pretty like back to back? Are you Oh yeah. kind oh, of yeah. unintentionally doing yeah. intermittent fasting? <laughs> well, I, um, so I'll see anywhere from two to six patients an hour. It depends on the day and some, and it sounds rude, but some patients need to just come in and just get a, a little test done, like a, what's called a bladder scan. Oh, good. Your bladder's empty. Great. I'll see you in six months, you know, stay out of trouble. Some people need to come in and just get uh, what we call catheter change. And so those are little, you know, one, two minute, you know, visits. Some people need 45 minutes. You know, when I diagnose a very bad prostate cancer or someone's got a chronic pelvic pain that's been going on for six, seven, eight years, you know, they're going to get my attention. And unfortunately that backs up the day. And I, you just, I just can't help that. I don't have the luxury of seeing one person an hour, you know, or one person a half hour. I, it doesn't exist. Um, I do take lunch to some degree more because my staff needs lunch. And my, my philosophy is that if my staff is happy, I'm happy. If my staff is unhappy, I'm unhappy. And so we make sure that the staff takes an adequate amount of lunch, which I, I think they take an hour. Um, but in that hour, I'm making phone calls. I'm doing my notes. I'm making, I'm ordering tests. And, you know, so I'd sit down for a few minutes, you know, and get, get, get some personal time. How often does that happen when an appointment goes way over and 
the rest Often. of your day. And Often. how have your patients, like, do they handle that appropriately or do you have a lot of patients that get upset? I have, I have some patients that get very, very mad at me and I can only apologize to them. But if a person rolls in with an emergency, um, I, I, you know, I'm either going to have to treat it or I have to send it to the emergency room. If I send it to the emergency room, I'm eventually going to have to go to that emergency room to fix that patient because 99% of the time, the emergency room doctor can't do what I do. You know, I'm a, I'm a specialist. No offense to them. They don't, a lot of them do not do urology emergencies. I do, I do that. And so if I have a person that walks in and I'm like, oh boy, here's a, here's an issue. Um, I have to give that person their needs and I can only hope that the next person understands that it's an imperfect system. And if I have a patient that's very upset, I'll tell them, you know, your next visit, you need to be the first person of the day or you need to be the first person at lunch. That way you will always be seen on time. I know. And I feel like some people don't realize how much is involved behind the scenes with healthcare. And I feel like as a patient, whenever I go in, like even having my daughter, you know, and I've had people that have been an hour or two hours late, like you just, you get it when you're in healthcare. Oh, um, yeah. But when you're not- it's an, imp- it, it's an imperfect system because it may not even be me that's late. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.